Hi, this is Jean Nathan, and it is time for Crosstown Conversations. And um, it's also time for Women's History Month. It just started. And so uh, today and uh, every other show this month will be about um, women in all walks of life, um, primarily in our city of New Orleans, and um, or people who may have been living here and have gone elsewhere or um, have come from elsewhere, but we're going to celebrate women. And I think you'll enjoy um, both the interviews we have on today. I am here with somebody who I have sort of known for a long time, but not really known that well. Um, and I was impressed to hear just in the past few days about an award she just won. Uh, it's the Hannah Solomon Award for citizenship, I think generally, and, and for um, community work. And then I made a quick look at um, your bio to kind of catch up on things I didn't know about you. And what's interesting to me is that the things that you've worked on, women's issues, voter enrollment, our public libraries, Head Start, they could not be more relevant to what we are concerned about today and addressing today. And of course, voter enrollment in particular right now is, is frighteningly important because we have um, some folks who are determined to shape our political future by hurting people's ability to vote. Um, so I, I'm curious to know how you got started. Let's start with that particular area, how you got started with your interest and concern with voter enrollment. Where did that come from? You know, it's, it's interesting that that's the first question because my when I think about the first volunteer action that got me in this whole world of civics, it came down to, I was really young. I was asked to help hand out push cards for um, McGovern McCarthy. And um, I went onto you know, someone's property, knocked on the door. And when I handed them, the, handed them the card and said, you know, I'd like to talk to you about this candidate. The person said to me, get the F off my lawn. I don't want to talk to you. I don't, I'm not interested in your party. And I was maybe 12, I think. And I did it because an older friend's sister asked us to do it. But then I thought, boy, I better know what I'm talking about here. So I learned, but I really learned more about the candidate. And that was the uh, beginning of my involvement in voting. And I've, uh, I honed it you know, at the very beginning of my involvement with NCJW, NCJW has always been involved in voter protection. As the National Council of Jewish, of Jewish Women. For our audience, uh-huh. Yes, which I've been involved in since I moved to New Orleans, mm -hmm. which is over 20 years. And um, so I worked on their voter registration drives and campaigns, and then later did work with them nationally on the um, promote the vote, protect the vote. So I've been involved in voting and voting rights for a long time. What do you think of the situation we're in today? And uh, it, uh, I, I, I don't know about you, but as, as, as bad as things have seemed for a few years, now it seems ever more dangerous and scary and, and, and voting, voter rights is at the heart of it. How do you, how do you, how do you feel about what's happening right now? And, and um, I'm sure after all those years of voter enrollment, you're disappointed that we're at the place that we're at. So what, what are you thinking about what we need to be thinking, doing right now? Well, you know, in the last years, we've really, um, um, revved up to get new young voters, uh, you know, ready for the polls. And it worked the last time. But what really worries me are these, you know, the, the um, Voting Rights Act, the um, gutting of the Voting Rights Act. So, you know, we, cert we took out certain protections a few years ago um, in certain states that made sure that, that 
people weren't turned away from the polls. And yet the Supreme Court, you know, changed the rules a little bit by gutting certain elements of the Voting Rights Act. And now we've got something right now also, um, you know, happening with the Supreme Court. And I hate to see our, our you know, we hate to see our rights taken away. So we move forward and then we move backwards. So really the most important thing we can do right now is keep up this energy to get people and, you know, registered and focus on the young people and educate the young people about the, port, the importance of voting and their individual vote. And it seems like in the last election, they really did respond. They did they did get involved. And I felt like um, I was really impressed with um, the spirit, the spirit of the younger people. They, they, a lot of the activism that we saw over the past year that some have tried to um, mischaracterize as um, being related in any way to what happened on the 6th in Washington. It, that's just not fair. Um, we had peaceful demonstrations all over the country over um, social issues and, and people's rights. So I, I'm actually kind of, uh, that's what gives me hope is the young people. It, it, I feel like they are kind of back where we were in, well, I don't know about you, but I did, I was active in the 60s. So I, I think about the time that we were, um, you know, protesting the Vietnamese war for one. And of course there was a civil rights movement. And so, um, you know, there was a lot of action back then. Uh, how, how did you first get involved in volunteer work? Because I mean, it, it, take, it really does take a lot of energy, as you said. And um, I, I get the impression, and I don't know enough about it, but I'm gonna get that from you right now, that um, you take your volunteer work very seriously and you really dig in and, um, and, and uh, work at it the way somebody might work at a business or a job. So, so tell me about how that developed. What, what was going on in your younger years that drove you in that direction? Well, that's a great question. Um, so when I was in um, junior high, I don't even remember who the person was, but it was a mother who, you know, asked, I guess, some teachers to gather a group of students who might be interested in tutoring in public schools in Philadelphia. And I thought that sounded fun. So I went, uh, once a week with this mother and I guess a handful of kids, however many she could fit in her car. And we went to a public elementary school and um, I worked with kids after school and it was really, it, I loved it. I loved seeing kids interested in learning and appreciating the help, um, wanting to better themselves and their homework, their reading, their math, whatever. So, that was probably my first volunteer effort. And um, I ended up becoming a teacher. I taught art in college. Um, oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, I taught art in junior high, actually. I loved it. Um, and then I met Rick and I ended up moving. So, and he was involved in just starting an alternative energy business. So all of our energy as young business entrepreneurs went toward that, but I always stayed attached to the art community in Princeton by volunteering um, in the schools and with another organization <clears throat> called <clears throat> the Partnership for Arts Education, of which I always left because I was the secretary, uh, the uh, treasurer, and I kept my notes in a composition book. So, <clears throat> You know, that was pre-computer. Anyway, we did great work with Partnership for Arts Education. Um, and like I said, I was always involved in my kids' schools at that time. I had two kids in elementary school. And that was just a way for me to sort of wiggle in, see what the schools were doing, you know, how they were really working. And then I could also do my work as a volunteer. And I love that. Then we moved to New Orleans. And when we moved to New Orleans, I didn't have a studio. Um, I, you know, had to figure out where we were going to live. The school thing was a whole new world for me because I came from a town where we didn't have to think about where we were going to put our kids in schools. 
because they, you know, they had great public schools. And so I started getting involved here. I actually started tutoring at the Schomburg School. Mm. And um, then somebody through NCJW found out that um, I was tutoring and I wasn't connected to anybody. And they said, well, if you're gonna do it, you may as well have the power of the group join us. So I did. And I then ended up taking over the tutoring program for NCJW. And then I sort of, you know, sort of went up the ladder in NCJW. And like I said earlier, I got a lot of training from NCJW nationally and had great mentors here and just, you know, fell into different areas of interest like the New Orleans Family Justice Center and Via Link and WWNO and there you go. Um, I, I wanna hear more about um, your involvement with the, um, the, the youth programs that you, you started with um, and, and the, the tutoring and, and how you went from that very specific activity to having more and more responsibility. I think a lot of us are afraid or reluctant or don't have the, don't think of ourselves as leaders to move up. Um, so there's a lot of people who have the capability to, to be um, in, in, in more leadership roles, but just don't do that. What gave you the confidence to take on more responsibility for working with others, getting others to do the tasks that were important to the causes you've been working on? Well, you sort of touched on something earlier that made me think this. And I had always worked, you know, until I moved to New Orleans, I full-time worked. Um, I don't know how I did it, you know, with three kids and still had a full-time job. But when I came to New Orleans and I stopped working, I, I got to a certain point in time after the first year of being here that I really didn't know what to do with myself. I, was, I wasn't working, I was starting to crack up and I needed to do something. So then, I, so then I started tutoring, but I loved having the opportunity when I was asked to take on that aspect for NCJW of the tutoring program because it meant, oh, I get to now meet people, organize, you know, um, set things up, talk to the greater community, help children. So I was, I was starting to get back into working again. And so it actually became a full-time job, all this volunteerism, especially when I took the, you know, jumped in to take the role of president of NCJW after Katrina. Um, so that was a rough time to take on that level of responsibility. Uh, I, tell me about that. Well, I, we were driving back with, you know, Rick and I and my sister-in-law and brother-in-law were driving back to New Orleans from, uh, you know, Princeton, New Jersey, after our year of exile, after school ended. And um, we got to North Carolina and we were staying overnight in a hotel as a pit stop. And I got a phone call from somebody and uh, they asked me if I would be the president of NCJW. And I thought, what? <laughs> I'm not even home yet. <laughs> you know, um, but prior to that, I was the vice president of public affairs and um, Joelle Myers and I organized that famous or uh, infamous uh, forum with the 20 plus candidates for the mayoral. Um, remember that debate with the 20 plus candidates? Mm -hmm. Well, I worked on that from afar. I was the public, you know, public relations on that and found every newspaper across the country. And we really did great with that. That was fun. That was my work all year in exile. Um, but getting back to answer the question, which was. <laughs> How did you take on such high responsibility? Oh, right it was fun. It was fun to get my brain active. It, it was fun, it was work, I needed to work, I needed to do stuff and I needed to relate. I needed to have my hands in the community and with people and talking and learning. That's, I, you know, I was learning every day, so. What, um, speaking of learning, um, what would you say are some of the sort of key 
lessons in a sense that you have learned through your volunteer work. Um, you know, what experientially that you did um, had a lasting impact on who you are in one way or another? Hmm. I know that's well, a thought, uh, a, a thumb-sucking kind of question, but. Hmm. So I, first of all, I learned that people want to be involved and people need to be asked. And there's really not enough time in the day to reach out to everybody, but that's really what it takes. It takes, it takes being out there to talk about what is meaningful and important to you and you know, creating the time to, to meet people, to explain that, you know, having coffee and talking about what's important to other people and how we can move forward to make things happen. But I think that people wanna be invited they want to be included. They want to be asked to join. And, 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 and when you make that, when you take time to do that outreach, it usually works. Um, this is Women's History Month, which is one of the reasons why I'm interviewing you. And uh, uh, every show I do for the rest of the month is going to be uh, with women who have taken on um, this kind of work, leadership work in one way or another. Um, what would you say that if, if you feel that women have had a particular kind of role or have functioned in a certain way in relation to getting things done, is there some way you would characterize how women work um, and think that's maybe different from men or just, just basically, how do you? What do you think it is about the way women get involved that um, stands out for you? I guess, uh, I guess you know, it's it's been women who are allowed to, um, you know, be kinder, nicer, more giving, loving, accepting, and now these things are changing. Which for me, actually, I think. You know, I think that's wonderful. I, you know, all those embraceable kinds of traits that are have been known to be for women are now acceptable and actually being honored in both, you know, in all for all people. And I think that's a wonderful way that we're changing right now. But I guess historically, um, you know, women have. Uh, there's just a more nurturing way that women can reach out and, and include people. But for, again, I wanna, I wanna state how wonderful I think it is that now everybody is softer, you know, can be kinder and nicer. And, um, I don't know about loving. everybody, but a lot of us. <laughs> well, we hope, we hope. Yeah. Um, what's next for you? And and I have two, two last questions because we're gonna run out of time pretty soon, but. What's next for you and um, what do you do for just pure fun or just you know, expressing your creativity? Well, I, I attempted to set up a studio about 12 feet away from this space. I finally took out all of my uh, art supplies and took two folding tables and open them up and put everything out so I can look at it every day so I can start to be creative. But what's next for me is, you know, I still lead Louisiana Courts Matter. I co-chair that. I, um, I'm, you know, the Center for Jewish Multicultural Relations, I'm co-chairing that. And what's next for me is that I am hoping to pull in more young people so that they can be mentored and, event and eventually move in and take things over. So that's kind of what I'm working on, mentoring and hoping that I can just move over and start to play more because whereas <laughs> I always had a good playground before moving to New Orleans from my um, you know, work outside of, my play outside of work here, it's funny, when I came to New Orleans, I remember saying to Rick, there's so much art and creativity in New Orleans. They don't need another artist here. They need, a, they need someone to help with the civics 
And we always need more artists. <laughs> well, maybe I'll get back into that realm. Well, um, I mean, I'm not challenging your uh, decisions about how you how you've spent your time and the volunteer work you're doing, but I, I just um, I, I certainly uh, believe strongly in how the arts are a part of um, our, our community lives, and I think they're going to be more important than ever as we come out of the pandemic because we were missing them during this time and and. Not that we didn't tune in on things on on um, on the internet, but that's not the same as going to a live performance or going to see an artist's work in a gallery. So I think that uh, we're all gonna be uh, looking for more engagement with the arts as we come out of this. And I think, uh, I, I quote, uh, Lisa Alexis is the head of the mayor's office of, of um, cultural economy and, and she once said this statement and I, I use it a lot and that is the arts will lead us out of this. And, you know, the arts are visceral, you know, they, they strike us to our core. I really miss seeing dancing. I, you know, that, miss going to the galleries too. Pardon me. Dance, one of your favorite art forms. I love to watch dance and I, you know, and I love the opera. I felt like I discovered the, um, the opera Creole right before all this happened. And I thought, what a rich gem that the city has in that. Yeah. And you know, my son's an actor and um, he had a movie that came out just this week actually. And we couldn't, it's playing at the Britannia but we can't really go to the movie theater yet, you know? So yes, the arts, you know, my family, is a, we are artists and um, we know how important it is and it will lead the people out and it will lead to compassion and greater understanding and artists always lead in that area. I can't help but ask you what your son's uh, film is, is named and, um, and uh, is it being streamed? It is being streamed everywhere. It's called The Vigil mm -hmm. and um, IFC released it this week and it's at Britannia Canal Place. And it's a horror, but really it's more a, a psychological thriller. It's a very unique story. And um, his name is Dave Davis and he's the star. I'm very proud of that, very proud of him, proud of all my kids really. They all do great work for community. I don't, um, I, I don't love horror. I'm, I'm, I'm allergic to it, um, but uh, we, we did enjoy, um, I don't know if you saw that recent Jarmouche movie and I probably won't remember the name of it, but um, it, it's the one where um, the uh, um, critters are coming out, the zombies are coming out of the ground. Did you see it by any no. chance? No. It was, it was very funny because it, it, it um, you know, it, it, was, it was basically a, com a comedic, horror show. So I could kind of keep my hands over my eyes for the really gory parts, but enjoy the rest of it. Um, Ina, I, um, am, I am admiring what you've been doing and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to hear uh, how you keep it going. And I think one of the key words that you used in relation to um, what has motivated you is energy, is, is, is having it and maintaining it and sharing it. Is that a fair? That is, that's, that's fair. You know, I remember I'm thinking about the first time I met you and I think it was when we came together, you invited us to talk about the Global Green Project. And of course we were involved in alternative energy and that was something that was, you know, important to us. And uh, I remember your energy. So, and how exciting that was for you and we, did share that and you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of proud of the global green effort I think it, it was definitely a factor not the only but a factor in promoting the idea of us coming back out of Katrina um, using more uh, environmentally sensitive building techniques and um, of course having brought Brad Pitt into town didn't hurt um, and I know he's taken a little bit of a hit for a couple of the buildings that didn't work out in the village, but for goodness sake, he got it done. I mean, he said he was going to do it and he did it. And that's not everybody um, that's able to uh, 
to, to just not only talk about something and advance it, but to actually get it done. So yeah, I liked, um, I liked Global Green and um, I, I like all of the uh, things that uh, people are doing in this city today still on this. And, and I like my husband's art about it too. He does a lot of environmental art and his latest uh, thing that he calls um, his red, his red phase where he's, he's painting th consumer objects, especially those being made in China, which is almost everything now, uh, red as a statement of the danger of consumerism to our planet. And um, that's so fabulous. When are we going to be able to see it? Well, he, he had a show of it really early on in COVID at the Octavia. Um, I think that was July, um, but he's getting ready. Uh, he's, he's making a proposal to an organization in New York to bring it up there. And he's now calling it the Red Store. So it'll be uh, kind of a store context with all of these uh, red objects. You can see some of it online. I'm not I, I don't want to promote my husband on this show. I'm, I'm uh, thrilled with um, having had an opportunity to talk a little bit more with you. And um, please keep us uh, informed of the things that you're involved with. And uh, anytime that um, you would like to uh, get some exposure for something that um, you or your organization or other people that you know are doing, uh, please uh, let us know because that's what we do. We try to focus on um, local efforts, both uh, for-profit and not-for-profit. We, we also promote local business. Um, I'm an um, a, a, um, anti-advocate, I guess you might call it, of, of uh, things like Amazon. I want people to go, go and shop in our stores in the city. So um, that's uh, another one of uh, my, my own causes. I kind of support Dana Ennis and her crew um, in what they do with Stay Local. and. Um, I think it's important for us to uh, get out and shop on Magazine Street and Ferret Street and, and in all the little markets all over the city. So that's, that's exactly what when people come to town and we, I take them to Magazine Street, I say, okay, well, this is what we have to do. We have to support the local economy. Here we go. Right. And St. Claude, and I even do things in St. Bernard, and, and there's things in Araby that are developed. Oh, and let me, let me say in St. Bernard, there's a great, I also um, volunteer with Sister Hearts. Oh, okay. Yeah, Sister Hearts is a thrift shop in St. Bernard, um, but the proceeds from Sister Hearts helps uh, the decarceration program that comes out of um, the Sister Hearts that the focus of Sister Hearts is to help with newly decarcerated and to help people get back on their feet again. People who don't have a support system, right? People who come out of prison without any kind of support system can go and learn um, how to work again at Sister Hearts and they can go through training and um, they provide the resources to help them, you know, get back into society. It's a wonderful, amazing program. And, you know, I'll inform you about Sister Hearts. Please do. And, and, and thank you for calling that to my attention. And I will look into that. Um, and thank you for what you do. Ida Davis, a citizen, recent awardee of the Hannah Solomon Citizenship Award. Ah, we have an award to look at. Great. I'm very proud of this award. It's beautiful. She was the founder. She was the founder of National Council of Jewish Women back in 1893, Chicago. Wow. She first worked to make sure that children were not working in factories. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that women were protected who were working in factories and all people. Yeah, that was a very difficult time in um, our economic evolution and we're in another one right now. And I think the concern now is to make sure that our young people are getting educated for the new kind of economy that we're in. I couldn't resist getting that in because I, I care a lot about that. Thank you very, very much. And I, uh, people in the audience don't know this, but um, we pulled this together very quickly. And um, therefore I think Anna is a real sport in <laughs> doing this. And um, look forward to seeing you out on the uh, community trails. Thank you, Jean. Thanks. Thank you. You've just heard from um, a supreme volunteer. And, and now you're going to hear from a woman who, who has taken a very deep dive 
into the issue of housing. And she has a show called Displaced that is presently at the Contemporary Arts Center. Um, and I urge you to see it. It is a phenomenal show and you are going to both enjoy seeing it, but also learn a lot about how difficult the housing situation in New Orleans has been for so many. So Shana, I think, um, of course, I had the experience in New Orleans uh, after uh, Katrina. Um, I worked on a lot of the community engagement in the planning after Katrina, but specifically I um, was very concerned about what I was seeing happening with um, public housing. Uh, and it was just, it was so, uh, it, I think the thing that got me the most was um, after we were unsuccessful in stopping the destruction of Lafitte and the destruction of St. Bernard and, and so much of the public housing throughout the city, to watch the um, process of demolition come in and literally throw people's property out the windows to the ground. And from what I understand, I was told that they were the, the companies doing the demolition were told that they could actually take whatever they wanted. And I'm a, a, a little bit of a, a, a person who's concerned about the objects in my life most of which are uh, involve art in some way. And the thought of my property being thrown out the window or offered to anybody who's involved in the process of destroying the place that I lived is phenomenally sad and um, just so ex ex explicit in reflecting the attitudes that you're speaking of um, towards a people. So um, I don't know how much you were involved in that phase, uh, but that's that's one that I was directly in, involved in and um, really pretty much horrified of, of, about it. But then reading your displaced, um, the document that you have there um, that uh, includes uh, a record of some of the things that we're talking about um, to, to look at that again, to see that redundancy is what comes home to me. How do you see going forward that we can get out of this pattern? I know that you've thought about that because I know that you think not just about what's wrong, but what is right and how to go in that in the right direction. Thank you for um, sharing um, your experience um, in advocating um, to save public housing and also a reminder to our listeners um, of the post-Katrina um, experience. Um, there was some, it was very um, violent times in the ways in which public housing residents uh, in public housing neighborhoods wasn't seen as legitimate neighborhoods or the residents wasn't seen as human, um, deserving of uh, opportunity to define how their communities should be rebuilt and also the ways in which their belongings, um, their sense of place and sense of home was disregarded and considered disposable and for the taking of many. And one of the things I think a lot about and, um, and through my research really try to interrogate the ways in which we are, how we come to understand what displacement is. And through this work, you know, I am very careful and often am reminding people that displacement um, exists in many different forms and is not, displacement and gentrification are not the same thing. Um, you can displace a community without gentrifying, but when you gentrify a community, displacement will exist. And, and there's different ways in which that displacement shows up. It's also important um, to understand displacement. Um, in order to displace a community, you have to confine. And oftentimes to confine a people requires some level of extraction of dislocation, of erasure, enslavement, um, of policing, of criminalizing, of excluding, of disappearing. 
And so when we think about public housing um, and a demolition of public housing, which didn't need to occur, that was a choice. That was decisions that was made. Um, and how the demolition and the fight to save public housing really exposed the ways in which um, the bodies of Black people who resided in public housing was completely disregarded um, and wasn't valued. And so I was pretty actively involved um, in the planning process in regards to the neighborhood that I lived in um, at the time in terms of Mid-City, as well as in a lot of advocacy efforts um, to save public housing um, and to save affordable housing. Um, both we're thinking about uh, public housing, also fighting for um, share equity housing opportunities through community land trusts, as well as advocating for the discriminatory ways in which um, black homeowners' homes were um, devalued through the road home process. And so thinking about ways of engaging and fighting for affordability that wasn't tied to public housing while also recognizing public housing residents um, were disproportionately um, disposed of in the name of creating a new New Orleans. Yeah, so in thinking about, um, you know, one of the things I try not to rush to do um, through my work, um, although it's pretty heavily implied, is to rush to solutions. I think too often we don't spend enough time sitting with the weight of decisions that are made and the detrimental impact they have in people's lives. And so I think it's really important to understand how even when we're thinking about um, evictions, um, the eviction crisis is tied to policies of the past and it's tied to our the history of our residential lease laws in the state that are pro-property um, owners and how our residential lease laws was created in 1825 during a time period when New Orleans was the largest slave trading post in the country. And it's not coincidental um, that our tenant right laws today are so pro-landlord um, at the expense of renters. And the, the reality is, is New Orleans is a city of renters. We're a city of artists. Um, we're a city of people who are constantly reimagining and recreating um, opportunities um, and exploring the boundaries of what those opportunities imaginaries can look like through art which is a major draw to people, um, to the city. Yet the folks who are creating and reimagining are the ones who exist in, you know, pretty precarious housing situations. And it's the people that we don't care how they're going to be housed. Um, and, and, and to be housed, you know, you spoke of this um, in a previous segment, but, you know, our housing is not just about a place where we live. It's also how we are positioned into a society, how it determines our ability to vote. You cannot vote without an address. It also determines our proximity to toxic environments and landfills. It determines our proximity to law enforcement, um, whether we are likely to experience harassment or likely to experience protection of. Is also how we're positioned in a job market, in a school district. Housing is everything. Um, also, where we live determines what stories are told about who we are or who we once were. And when we think about displacement, um, displacement is um, a form of erasure. To displace a community necessitates a rewriting of what that community once was or pretending like the people previously lived there didn't exist. We see this historically and we see this contemporarily. And so 
and thinking about ways are um, changing or thinking differently about our housing policies um, and land use planning. It's important that we yeah, not allow ourselves to be in a position where we are reproducing the violence um, that made the policies that we're challenging today exist. And we have to remember the histories of people who've come before. Um, and naming that history, even when it doesn't look great, or it doesn't remind us when we were wise. And so it's really important to be able to sit with the decisions that were made, and also making sure that our advocacy efforts are not ahistorical. Otherwise, we find ourselves recreating the very same policies that we were um, initially trying to eradicate. Yeah. And so these things keep coming up again and again, like, you know, what occurred in Lower, Mid Lower Mid-City with the demolition um, of homes to create the new hospital. Um, it happened before. And unfortunately, my mother, um, unaware, was found herself um, caught up in that where she was constantly being displaced and have and had to move again and again and again. Um, and also, when we think about um, as you know, the many families, hers included, found themselves displaced to the desired public housing development because it was one of the few places where they can find affordable housing and be find stability. We see that today with a lot of families being pushed out of the city and further and further out in New Orleans East. Um, and again, in a vehicle dependent community, yet is one of the fewer places where people are finding affordable housing. And it's also one of the areas of the city where we see high eviction rates as well. Yeah, and um, and 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 also uh, another pattern that uh, I I don't it, it does affect the east, but it affected in particular people who were pushed towards the lower ninth ward uh, and mm -hmm. even the upper ninth ward. Um, and uh, one thing I learned at some point in my own investigations during the post Katrina period was that um, um, black people were excluded from some of the higher ground neighborhoods and pushed into the lower ground neighborhoods. So one of the reasons why there, there were so many um, people who lost their homes, lost family members, lo lost their lives in the lower ninth ward was because again, uh, that was a place that they could go when they couldn't go to say Lakeview, for example, that was developing around the same time. And that's another pattern that you see in neighborhood after neighborhood in a city where people are pushed into geographically less, you mentioned polluted areas, that was another thing that happens, but also um, just plain high versus low ground is a pattern that is not just yeah. in New Orleans, but in many other places as well. Yeah, and I would just add that, you know, um, you know, it's not necessarily just about the low ground versus the high ground. It's about being pushed in geographic areas that are deemed less desirable, recognizing that desirability changes over time. And there was many Black communities um, in um, the Irish Channel, along um, Chapel Tulis, um, you know, even I, I went to school elementary school in the French Quarter at McDonald's 15 during a time in which the quarter was a working class black and bohemian community. Um, yet it was also a community in the 1930s that was deemed um, redlined. It was redlined. The French Quarter was redlined. And so that desirability changed over time, right? And so like 45% of the city was considered unworthy of investment, designated raid, and about another 40 designated yellow in terms of declining. And so 85% of the city wasn't even um, considered worthy of investment. Um, when we think about the federal how the federal, me, I'm sorry, the homeowners loan corporation red, um, security district maps and redlining maps are even that of the federal housing administration's underwriting handbook. And so that desirability changes over time. 
And so when we think about neighborhoods um, that are often, um, where, you know, uh, that are unaffordable or has gentrified many of those neighborhoods today that has gentrified our neighborhoods that were once considered redlined. And again, it's about the push and the pull uh, and if what is considered desirable and valuable and who may, which communities or individuals may pose a threat to that desirability. Um, and if they pose a threat, then they become vulnerable to policing and criminalization then that then justifies their mistreatment. Um, and this is how these communities have disappeared. Um, and so I think is, you know, it's, it's also based on the geography, right? And, and so like, you know, there were many residents, um, black families who attempted to purchase homes in Lakeview, um, but they couldn't get mortgages um, because of the color of their skin. Um, and if their presence was considered um, uh, a danger um, to the white communities of, you know, uh, of the area. And so I definitely feel like geographic, there are definitely a lot of geographic implications as well as desirability and how, it, again, it changes over time. And so, um, you know, many, when you look at a realigning map of New Orleans, it's really striking to see um, what exists now and what exists then. Also, it's really striking that the redlining maps of the 1930s um, mirrors the eviction geography of the city today. Mm, yeah. Well, I know um, I, I found uh, what you were saying about not uh, jumping and racing to solutions. I, I, I understand that. Um, and yet it is so frustrating to, um, to see a city that should be such a uh, important rich center. And it is such a rich center of our cultural heritage, um, constantly undermined by these policies. Um, I can't help but feel that we desperately need to be able to um, at this point in, in our history, when I think the city is very vulnerable again, um, not, not just because of the pandemic and, and the, um, the, uh, um, the, the evaporation of the hospitality industry, um, however temporarily uh, it, it may be. Um, and then that's a whole other level of discussion, of course, about the impact of that. But, uh, I, I feel like we certainly have to be thinking about how we can, um, at this moment when there is a lot of gentrification, there, can, there is a lot of evictions, evictions are going to get worse because they will um, still uh, proceed even as we approach a point when many people will be finally vaccinated and the pandemic will ease off. But um, between now and then, there's still going to be more uh, evictions. I, I, it's, 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 we have to figure out ways to tackle this. Um, we're actually out of time again um, for our, our second um, uh, segment. I feel like we're going to have to have a couple more. Um, uh, tell me again when your show ends. It ends what in when, uh, April? Yes, um, I'm so, I keep running out of time. This is so good. So this, um, the show is called um, Displacing Blackness, Cartographies of Violence, Extraction, and Disposability. And it, um, the exhibition showcase runs until April 25th. One of the things that I, um, in the, uh, one of the things I want people to walk away with as they exit this space is to think deeply about how do we disrupt historical patterns Right. of Black displacement and dislocation rooted in racial slavery? How do we challenge hidden and explicit forms of racial, sexual, and reproductive violence in housing policies and land use planning? And I ask, is it possible to create housing policies that don't reinforce carceral landscapes and colonial imaginaries? And I think we know some of the answers to those questions. And hopefully when we do our part three or maybe four, we can get to some of those. And you know what I think might be interesting, um, and I'm going to explore with you whether you would be comfortable with this or not, um, but there are certain developers in the city who 
live in this space in in this um, in in the in the areas that um, have been considered as disadvantageous as not the best neighborhoods, um, and then they work to develop them into um, neighborhoods that um, often become gentrified, and and see if we can have a dialogue with um, some of them that might, because uh, I, I don't think that public policy alone is ever going to solve this. Certainly looking at your histories, public policy mm -hmm. over, over again, um, fell into um, the rabbit holes of, of displacement and, and did not solve the problem. So I think ultimately we have got to figure out how to, um, encourage, incentivize, um, demand, um, I'm not sure what the right verb is, of the yeah. developers who yeah. are the instruments of the, of the, of the housing uh, programs to... Um, yeah, I would just, yeah, Gina, I would just add that there are many examples of organizations like Jane Place Neighborhood Sustainability Initiative, the first community land trust here in the city, a land trust that I co-founded in 2008. There's also amazing work that's taking place by um, the Greater New Orleans um, Housing Alliance and Housing NOLA, as well as Louisiana um, Fair Housing Action Center. Um, also, turn amazing attorneys like Hannah Adams with the Southeast Louisiana Legal Services of Davida Finger, um, a law professor who works with Loyola Law Clinic, as well as act, um, you know, long time um, public interest in civil rights attorneys like Bill Quigley, who was at the forefront of many of these housing struggles pre-Katrina and post. I will also just emphasize as we close that the housing crisis that we're witnessing today was not caused by the pandemic. New Orleans had, eviction rate was double the national average before the pandemic. And so this is an ongoing issue, it's not something new. Right. Again, as I mentioned with regards to the, what I have currently on showcase at the CAC, um, the roots of the housing crisis here in the city um, is, exists within um, the history of racial slavery in this country. Um, we've been talking with Shana Griffin. She's quite a remarkable person. Her exhibition at the Contemporary Arts Center is a must-see um, uh, you know, bring your lunch bag <laughs> um, and be prepared to put some time in uh, because it, it will, as I, I said um, in previous segments, it, it, it pulls you in um, and, and in all those different uh, walls and, and sections of the story. It's, it's like peeling an onion. You just keep seeing another level. Shana, thank you so much for what you do and in so many other ways the, what you've been doing in the arts community during COVID has been such an extraordinary um, effort as I've said many times and I appreciate your work in that uh, realm as well and sometime we'll um, also talk about that on the show. Um, so I look forward to our next segment but I can't um, start that one right now. I think we'll uh, stop here and uh, consider a little bit what we've been talking about. I want to go see the show again, and then we'll talk about maybe bringing some other people into the conversation and maybe even say we could dedicate a whole show to this with other people involved as well. Thank you so much. Absolutely. You're welcome, Gina. Thank you so much for inviting me and allowing me to share with your audience. That's women's history for this week, and I look forward to our candidates for next week, which will include the inimitable um, Irma Thomas. Known her forever, um, love her. She's been such a sport in supporting um, so many music things that are going on in the community. So I think you'll enjoy next week too. So this is Jean Nathan for Crosstown Conversations. Thank you for listening. <laughs>